0: Well, join me in prayer. That's our prayer, Lord, that you would speak and keep speaking and keep speaking and keep speaking until your church is built and until the earth is filled with your glory. You are the God who speaks and who keeps your promises. You are the God who has promised to set All things right. We confess that um, we often find ourselves over-anxious and paralyzed by looking around and seeing the little that we see and understand. And in those moments in those seasons, we find that we don't trust you the way that we should. You who see the whole canvas, the whole picture, all that is going on. And so this morning, help us to trust you rather than what we see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. And as you do, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 8. Mm -hmm. Romans 8. We're in verses 18 through 25 this morning. Verse 18. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, if you've not been with us recently, you may not know. We've been in the middle of the book of Romans, and we just recently started Romans 8 up. Many people have said Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in all of the Bible, We've seen a lot of things in Romans 8. We've seen that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a little bit of condemnation. Paul says, none. We've seen not only is there no condemnation, but we've seen that we've been adopted into God's family. Romans 8 ends with the memorable question and answer. Paul asks, Who will separate us from the love of God? Can anything separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Can persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. He says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors. For neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is a magnificent, memorable chapter. But right in the middle of Romans 8, seemingly out of nowhere, Paul begins to talk about creation. And he talks about creation groaning and hoping and being in childbirth. Aside from this being some at least to our ears, a strange way to talk about creation, something that would, maybe if we give just a little bit of thought to it, might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable with how much Paul's personifying creation, aside from all of that, it feels a bit like a a third person has made its way into a two-person conversation. Do you see that? We've been talking about no condemnation between who? Us and God. We are looking forward to the day when nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's a conversation, it seems, about us and God. And in the middle of Romans 8, something interesting, something maybe a little confusing happens. All of a sudden, Paul pivots and starts talking about creation and groaning and waiting and being in labor. In fact, if you think about how we tend to talk about salvation, our conversation tends to revolve around two things. Our sin and God's holiness and justice. And we talk about it like this. We say, we have sinned, and before a holy and just God, our sin creates a separation between us and God. And so what has God done? Well, God has sent his son, To die on the cross for us, so that our sin might be forgiven, so that we and God might be brought back together. And that's the salvation story that we tell. What is Paul doing here in the middle of our salvation story, pivoting and talking about creation? Has a, a third person just entered a conversation that they don't belong in? That's, I think, what it might feel like. To us, But our problem is that our vision of salvation is a little bit too narrow compared to the Bible's vision. So what I want to do is we're going to back up a little bit. um, Because what I want to show you is Paul's not just inventing something new here. Paul's not just sprinkling in a few new pieces. Paul's actually working out a long hope that God's people had had for a long time. So let me cast the biblical vision for you of salvation... And then we'll circle back to Romans 8, and hopefully this will read and some new things might spark for us. So the first thing to know is creation matters. Now, I know we all think we know this. Creation is the place where God and humans were supposed to live together. It's the tapestry that the whole redemptive saga is written into. If you think about your Bible, creation is where your Bible starts. It's also where your Bible ends. It's from creation's dirt that you and I get formed. Into the garden, humans were placed. And in the Bible, on the last page, it's this new garden city where we find that we will spend all of eternity. I think we often think of creation as as kind of a a supporting character, but in the Bible, creation comes in from the beginning to the end and sprinkled in at various points, not as a random uh, supporting character, but as a main piece that's going on here. So the first thing to know is that creation matters. The second thing for you to know is that humans are special. It is humans that God forms and tasks to rule over creation. They are to be his stewards. In Genesis 1, the language is image of God. Humans represent God. God creates forms, and then he sets humans there to rule and reign over what he's made. They are supposed to be his stewards. In Genesis 2, the language is he places Adam in the garden to do what? To work and keep it. The third thing that you should know is as the steward goes So goes the stewarded. You know this to be true. Five-year-old Johnny desperately wants this new Batman toy. And Johnny pleads and pleads and pleads. And finally, you give Johnny this new toy. And in a few hours, what happens? Well, that toy is filled with mud and broken in pieces. And Johnny's in the corner crying. Why? Because Johnny's a bad steward. He is given a good gift, he ruins it, and now he's sad, and the gift is broken. This is the picture that we get of humans and creation. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat from the fruit, they're not supposed to. God shows up, and he asks Adam, What happened? And Adam goes, I don't know, that woman you gave me, she did it. And he moves to the woman, he says, What happened? And she goes, I don't know, it's this snake. And then God moves to the snake, and he pronounces a curse on the snake. He pronounces a curse on the woman, and when he gets back to Adam, something interesting happens. The curse for Adam isn't just for Adam. He says, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat. But that's not all. Also, the ground gets cursed, and now it produces thorns and thistles. What once was good and pleasant is now broken. You move a couple pages later in your Bible, and this brokenness spreads. You get to Genesis 6, and think about the flood. What happens in the flood? In Genesis 1, God raises up the land from the watery mire. In Genesis 6, the waters cross their boundaries, recover the earth. In Genesis 6, creation is undone. It's ruined. Why? Because of sin. Sin. The idea is, humans were put to steward, to rule over, to care for the world, but humans are like Johnny. And instead of bringing blessing and goodness, we bring curses and pain. And the fourth thing you should know is that redeeming humans then means also what humans were supposed to steward gets redeemed as well. For God to deal with the problem of sin means to also deal with the effects of sin. And once you start seeing this, you see it pop all over the place. Over and over and over again, you'll see this pattern in your Bible. God rescues his people, and after that rescue, the next thing that you see happen is creation is restored. So think about Isaiah 11. That's a familiar passage for us. In Isaiah 11, it comes right after God has redeemed his people. And the outflow of this redeeming of his people is Isaiah 11 starts talking about some strange things happening. Wolves and lambs lay down together. Together. A little child is running along and plays in the hole of a poisonous snake, and nothing happens. A little child leads along vicious carnivores like on a leash. Why does all this happen? It happens because when things are set right between humans and God, that spills out, and everything then gets set right. I have a, a copy of a painting. In my office, we've got a picture so you can kind of see what this is. This is by a guy named Edward Hicks. It's called The Peaceable Kingdom, and it's a a painting off of Isaiah 11. And in it, you see what we've just talked about, a wolf and a lamb laying down peacefully together. You see a child playing in the hole of a a snake. Things are, are peaceful. I have this to remind myself that when things seem chaotic, when everything seems to be caving in on itself, Our God is the God who's promised to set things right and to bring a peaceable kingdom. You see this in places like Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 64, God redeems his people, and in Isaiah 65, there's talk of a new heaven and a new earth, complete, Isaiah says, with no crying, with no stillborn children, again, with a wolf and a lamb napping together. And by the way, the very last pages of your Bible embody the same thing. God redeems His people. And what follows? Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth. There's no more weeping or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And so also here in Romans 8 verse 21 Paul says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption so what I want to do I want to go back to Romans 8 we can't go back there often enough and I want to reread verses 18 through 25 one more time for us hopefully this time with a little bit of background In our mind, as we see the way that God works and moves in history, um, and maybe some of this stuff will pop in some new ways. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is, is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in the last bit of time that we have, I want to help us see three things that Paul highlights. So Paul highlights in verses 18 through 20 our present situation. And it's a a rough situation. We'll talk about it in just a minute. In verse 21, Paul points us to our future hope. And in verses 22 through 25, Paul then says, well, our future hope isn't where we are just yet. So what does our present work look like after we've seen this future hope. So uh, we'll start at verse 18 with our present situation. Now you'll notice this is felt pretty sharply. You remember where we ended last week? We ended last week in verse 17, and Paul said that we were to be heirs. That's a positive, high, good thing. And in verse 18, he turns sharply, and he starts talking about his present suffering. I find it refreshing that Paul is able to look his suffering in the face. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't push it away. He doesn't act like it's not that big of a deal. This is a different, I think, reality than the world that we live in and how we think about suffering. Either you'll find most people just cover up their suffering and pretend that it doesn't matter, or people will find themselves overwhelmed by their suffering and stuck in their suffering. But notice what Paul does. Paul compares his suffering. Now, it's important that we get this right. When Paul compares this suffering, he's not saying that his suffering is small, he's saying that the glory to come is great. This isn't a downplay of a suffering, it's a realistic view of how great the coming glory is. The suffering's not small until you compare it with the glory that is to come. Now, Paul was a man who was well acquainted with suffering, often persecuted, shipwrecked, investing his time, his energy, and hopes into churches that he hoped would flourish, and often they didn't. Paul knew suffering well. And he knew that things weren't the way that they ought to be. And that's true of those who follow Jesus. But suffering is even broader than that. Suffering doesn't just come to those who follow Jesus, but it comes to all humans. You think about warfare, famine, disease, rivalries, dissensions. There's a thousand ways to suffer and die. We humans seem to always be right on the edge of destroying ourselves. That's bleak. But Paul's not done. For it's not just you and me that find ourselves in places we wish we weren't. Paul says the same is true of creation. In our present situation, creation is also suffering. You notice Paul says that creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation's on the edge of its seat waiting for this to happen. Why? Verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, to vanity, to sterileness. Or as verse 21 says it, creation is in slavery, in bondage to corruption. Creation's unable to do the thing that God has tasked it to do. It's constantly unwinding, undoing, decaying, rotting, wearing out, and breaking. In Genesis 1, the idea was creation was to flourish. It was to produce fruit and good things. It was to be a place of abundance. But the creation we know is a place of scarcity too much rain and crops die too little rain and crops die the only thing that grows easily are the things that you don't want to grow and if you've ever built anything you know the sad reality is the moment that you finish decay starts Creation is plagued by hurricanes, by fires, by droughts and floods and tornadoes. Just recently, deadly earthquake in Morocco. Hurricane Lee is approaching in less than 24 hours, bumping up from a Category 1 to a Category 5. The lush Hawaiian island of Maui burned. On and on and on. Much like us, creation itself is constantly on the verge of being undone. And it's against this bleak backdrop that Paul points us to our future hope. Look at verse 21. The creation itself, Paul says, will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's creation, Paul says, will be freed from the slavery of corruption. Now, you should notice here, freedom for creation doesn't mean, and when we put it this way, it's, I think, pretty easy to see. Freedom for creation doesn't mean creation is then free to do anything that it wants. Freedom for creation means freedom is finally able to do what God has tasked it to do. It finally will be well stewarded. This is the same idea that we saw earlier with us. Our being set free in Christ, being given the Spirit, doesn't mean we then have the freedom to look around and decide whatever it is we want to do. The slavery that Paul has talked about is we've been enslaved to wanting to do the right thing and being unable to do it. And when the Spirit comes, we're set free because we are now finally able to obey God. And so God establishes humans to steward, to rule his creation. And when, verse 21 says, when the sons of God are revealed, then creation is freed from its slavery to corruption. The sign that marks creation's freedom is the children of God being revealed. Let me stretch something that I think we already know. So we know that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us, right? We're actually uh, later, at the end of the service, we get to celebrate baptism. And baptism is a picture that what's true of Jesus is true of us. Jesus died to sin and was raised back to life. So us. We die to sin in Christ and are raised back to life in Christ to walk in a new way of life. What's true of Jesus is true of us. As goes Jesus, so goes his people. But you'll notice here in Romans 8, there's another thing. As the steward goes, so goes the stewarded. When little Johnny finally learns how to treat his toy, his toy gets treated well when humans finally are set free from our bondage to slavery, when Jesus shows up and raises us back to life, verse 21 says, creation rejoices. The trees, as the psalmist would say, clap their hands. When God shows up, it's good news for all that God has made. Freed, remade, Glorified. We often use those words to talk about what happens to us when Jesus makes us new. We use these words to talk about what happens when Jesus shows back up. In the biblical vision, these words also get applied to all that God has made. That is, after all, what Revelation 21 and 22 are about. That's what Isaiah 11 and 65 are about. And that's what Romans 8, seemingly out of nowhere, at least to how we often read our Bible... Creation pops up out of nowhere, but for Paul, this isn't out of nowhere. This has been the hope all along, that when God shows up, when God sets things right, when sin is dealt with, when we are raised back to life, so finally flourishing and joy comes. That's that's where we're looking forward to, but Paul knows, and you know, that's not our present reality. So in verses 22 to 25, Paul points us to our present work. So the question is this. For those who have eyes to see that future hope, how then should we live now? And you'll notice, as has been the case all through Romans 8, Paul is tying everything to the Spirit. So here... He says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And you know what the Spirit does? The Spirit enables us to live in the now as if we were already in the soon-to-be. Right? Think about this. This is what makes the church in Acts look so different. In Acts 2, we read about this church that's gathering together and giving themselves to the teaching of Jesus. We read about this church that gathers together and shares their things so that if somebody doesn't have something, that need is quickly met. Why does the church act this way? Well, the church acts this way because the church has the Spirit. And the Spirit enables God's people to live now as if we are in the not yet. Our age right now, operates on selfishness and pride, on vindictiveness, on greed, on looking out for ourself. But the Spirit enables us to live out of selflessness and humility and forgiveness and loving God and others. We live as if we were in the future age when we are in the age right now. And two of the works that Paul says here that the Spirit does in us are, uh, it's a strange set. Notice what it is that Paul says that the first fruits of the Spirit does in us. It causes us to groan, this is verse 23, as we wait. Now, you won't find these two in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit, but here in Romans 8, Paul says The Spirit brings about groaning and waiting. And here's why. You are bothered by the Texas heat, not just because it's miserable. Like, it is. But the reason that it really bothers you is because you know what air conditioning feels like. Right? It bothers you in a way that I assume <laughs> it wouldn't bother you if you had never felt air conditioning before. The heat feels worse because you know something better. So why is it that we who have the Spirit groan? <clears throat> because we know something better. We know what's to come, and when we know what's to come and we look at what is, the right response is groaning as we wait. So here's the connection here. We groan because we look forward to something better. And our groaning is actually a signal that we're not in love with the present age, but that our lot is tied up with Jesus. Which means when you groan as you wait, you're actually worshiping. Have you thought about that? To look around at the pain around and groan is an act in itself of worship. We groan because what we hope for isn't yet here. So, what do groaning and hoping look like right now? What does it look like for us to groan and hope? Two suggestions for you, and this will be the last things that we have. The first thing that this should lead us to is to steward the world, to steward the things that God has given to us. We sang a song a moment ago called, This is My Father's World. It's a good reminder. Sometimes we don't think about the world like that. But it is. This is your father's world. God has tasked humans to rule, to care, to cause creation to flourish. In fact, Paul says here that creation is looking forward to the day when God's children get put on full display because then God's world will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And if the Spirit enables us to live now, as if we were in the age to come, then the call for us is to steward the things that we have. Take care of your father's world. F.F. Bruce, a really helpful exegete, uh, he says this, commenting on Romans 8. He says, Even now, man, who by selfish exploitation can turn the good earth into a dust bowl, can by responsible stewardship Make the desert blossom like the rose. So then he asked this question. What then will be the effect of a completely redeemed humanity on the creation entrusted to its care? And your imagination can run wild with that. This means that we don't live in a wasteful excess, right? We don't use all the resources we have around us just because they're there, but we live simply so that we can share with our neighbor, Martin Luther, the reformer, was once asked an interesting question. Someone asked him, if you knew tomorrow would be the end of the world, what would you do today? It's an interesting question for a thought experiment. His answer is a little surprising. Luther said, today, I'd plant an apple tree. Strange thing to do, knowing that tomorrow marks the end. Luther was a man who understood Romans 8. We do things now not worried about if we personally will get to see the good of it. Groaning and hoping looks like taking care of the things that God gives to us. But here's the second thing that groaning and hoping looks like. It looks like us taking heart in suffering. We sang a song a moment ago that said, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And here is where I think the main implication of what Paul has to say to us in Romans 8 is. Remember verse 18. Paul looks at his sufferings and he says, these sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Why does he say this? Well, he says this not because his sufferings are little. We know Paul suffered much. He says this because he knows the glory that is to come is far, far greater. This is an exaltation of the glory that then makes the sufferings look small. You think about how Hebrews talks about Christ's suffering. None of us would say that Christ suffered little, But Hebrews does talk about Christ looking at his suffering as joy. But why would Jesus be able to look at his suffering as joy? Because the glory that was to come is so much better. And as goes Jesus, so goes his people. So Paul says, I look at my suffering and it's not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. So how do you, How do I, how do we endure the struggles, the suffering, the brokenness all around us? How do you handle it when you feel like you've finally made a breakthrough with your kids and then you realize you haven't? Or when you feel like you've finally made a breakthrough at work and it doesn't pan out? You feel like you finally patched things up with a friend that you care about and you realize you haven't. You've been sharing the gospel with somebody and you think they finally got it. And they don't. You fix that broken thing on your house and you think you finally got it. And it's not. How do you deal with sufferings of all shades and stripes? Well, the answer is you groan And you hope. This is the work that the Spirit works within you because as you groan and as you hope, you find yourself in a position where you can work and labor by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And we know that the glory of God is also for the good of us. So, you, us, who have the Spirit, who know what should be and who also know that what is is not that, the task for you, in the meantime, is to groan and hope in trust that the God that you worship is powerful, able, and faithful. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of worship. You're worthy of worship because you are glorious and beautiful and wonderful. You are also worthy of worship because you are faithful. You complete what you start. You don't leave things undone. You are reliable and trustworthy and stable. And as we enter this week into all kinds of things that are unreliable and unstable and untrustworthy, I pray that those things would push us to place our eyes not on those things but on you. May that give us us the strength and the courage to do what's right and to be faithful like you and to live a life by the Spirit that would be pleasing to you. Help us to do that, we pray.